This is going to work out great. This is awesome. Let me tell you why it's going to work out great, too, is that I'm ready uh, to take a little break from preaching. Uh, Not now. (laughs) It's like, well, I got through 30 seconds, and that's great. Yeah, let me tell you what's going to happen here. Um, Over our 10-plus years of meeting as a church, the longest I've taken off is about three weeks, maybe four, like at one time. So I've been at this thing for a while, and I was like, okay, it's been 10 years. I just need to stop and take a break. There's a reason why you don't stop doing that, by the way, is because you're hammered in within a younger church. It's like, no, you know, having consistency in what is said really helps out. And I think they are looking at consistency of individual because you know I'm totally inconsistent in everything that I say. Um, Suffice to say, I, you know, we've broken so many church growth rules and it which is evident. So because we're at that point, and by the way, I'm, I've got a little something. I'm trying to figure out if it's me or if I've got to replace. My battery should be good. Or is it this? I don't know. We'll see. We'll monitor it. But anyway, so what's going to happen over the next few months is Steve won't be preaching, which is awesome. Uh, we're going to bring a couple of people from the outside. One next week I'm excited about is my friend Jim Spicer. And Jim uh, was actually here when we started the church 10 years ago down the street. And he works for a foster agency called Ohio Mentor. And he's a minister, and he's going to talk to us about just foster care and, and you know, biblical role in that. So that's going to be a good thing. Uh, I know some of you have done it or are contemplating it and stuff. And some of you just will be like, that's never me. But that's why we have uh, these voices to, to challenge us. And then I do believe that uh, Dr. Aaron Burgess will be returning to the fold. Uh, that guy hangs around a lot. We might actually pulpit switch so that he makes it easy. So I might go to Kentucky the day he comes in here, which is great because I talk to him all the time. But then what I'm excited about in the middle of is that many of you are going to be filling the, the, the pulpit during that time. And maybe even some of you don't realize it yet because Dylan's going to be scheduling it. So this is my – and some of you know – uh, what's coming up but this so this is the thing about that though this is what i'm asking is that you know it's coming towards spring and there's lots of things to do but do me a favor if you can make it a priority to be here over the next weeks so like some of you who are speaking it's like no don't because i don't want to talk to this many people but no make it a priority uh to come and be here and I, you know it's tough to stand in front of a bunch of eyes expecting you to bring something but i'm excited about these people sharing and stuff so um, like I said, it's going to be a, a cornucopia of you saying stuff. I'm very excited about it. I think it'll be the best thing ever. The church will probably grow and you'll get rid of me. And it'll be wonderful. There was only a little laughter there. I was like, <laughs> that's, that's the plan. So that's great. We're in Luke chapter 24. We are at the end of the book of Luke. And uh, I'll work my, we'll work our way there here. Just by way of introduction, I'm not sure if you're familiar, um, you know, you've probably seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's really become one of those latter hits, you know, like it's very solid. I think part of the reason that we resonate with a movie like this is because it has a solid soundtrack too, and the music sets the stage for the ethos. But, and many of you probably know this though, but one of the things that also makes it an interesting movie is that the narrative is actually... Three, almost 3,000 years old because it's based upon Homer's Odyssey. So, you know, not to give those of you with history issues uh, just painful, you know, flashbacks here today, but I don't know if you remember from middle school or high school is that there was a guy named Homer, not Simpson, but, uh, you know, the, and I do believe that's why he is named as such, but um, there, there was an ancient writer, probably lived about the 8th century before Jesus was born, And he wrote uh, a couple epic 
poems. The, the, the first one was the Iliad, and that had to do with the Trojan War. And then it was the follow-up, the one upon which, O Brother, Where Art Thou was based, was the Odyssey. And I don't know if you remember the Odyssey. It's the story of Odysseus. And Odysseus had fought in the Trojan War and basically had some issues getting home. So it was like he was gone for 10 years. And the whole aspect of the Odyssey is how can this man come home? And when he does, what does he find? So he struggles through, you know, cyclopses or singular cyclops and sirens and has all these other extracurricular activities only to come home to find that his house has been overrun with suitors for his wife, Penelope. Remember this story? So all these dudes are just hanging out. Number one, they're freeloaders. Number two, they're freeloaders with a purpose. It's like, I want to get this dude's wife, right? So there's a little bit of conflict within here to the point that Odysseus, instead of just showing up and going medieval on them, which would be the natural thing to do, he says, no, I'm going to disguise myself and go into my house and then see what everybody else still thinks about me, even though I've been gone this long time. So as he's going through the house, he has these random conversations with the house help and the, the people who are working the fields, even with his son Telemachus and even with his wife. And during that whole point, they don't recognize who he is. Like, how can you not know? You know, like you ever watch Undercover Boss and you're like, you know, did anybody watch the one with Mayor Mark Mallory here locally? It's like, how do you not know? Like, no, this dude's the mayor. Like, there's not, and he has like a, I just saw him at Coffee Emporium a couple weeks ago. He has like a distinctive physique. And it's just like, no, this random guy is riding along with you. Like, figure it out. And you're sure that 800 years before Jesus was born, they didn't have the use of prosthetics so that they could develop a good disguise. It's like, how do you not know? That that is the dude that lived here for so long. And the way that Homer uses in his poem to explain it, he says, Penelope was not prepared to meet her glance or understand it for Athene, or, you know, uh, is Athena the, the, the goddess who was protecting both um, Odysseus through the journey, and she over uh, arches this whole narrative. She had distracted her attention. So basically, there was some sort of block that this goddess had created so that she couldn't figure it out. And again, you're asking, what does this have to do with whatever? Well, we're in Luke chapter 24. In the Blue Bible, somebody have a page number there? 749 in the Blue Bible. So here's the issue, is that this narrative that was written 800 years before Luke wrote his narrative would have been common story in the time of Jesus, okay? Recognize this, is that literacy rates were very low and oral tradition was high. So it was these types of stories that carried on even through the generations. So even though we believe that Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey during a time uh, 800 years before Jesus was born, we don't know exactly when it was written. But here's the thing, is that this story, this very scene that we've talked about, about Odysseus disguising himself, actually is resonated here within the story that Luke tells of, about Jesus after his resurrection. So we are wrapping up today our study of Luke. We've been since September going through this entire book of the Bible about Jesus. And we are wrapping it up today, which is an interesting story that does not appear in any of the other gospel stories. So I need somebody to read. Somebody feeling it? Zane, you're right here. Can I just hand this to you? And you're bold. You're, you're, you're bold. You're just right. It was, it was accessibility. All right. So Luke chapter 24. Brother, will you do me a favor? Read verses 13 to 18. Now on, sorry, is that good? So 
It's still on? Okay, good. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with him. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only... Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? So interesting that Jesus spends the majority of his life gallivanting along, not the majority of life, but the three years of his ministry, gallivanting along Israel and the people who were closest to him, his disciples, right? Those aren't the ones that he appears to. We talked about last week. The first was a group of women that came to the empty tomb. Like it's peculiar, right? And I think part of this, too, is to emphasize what Luke is talking about. Because then again, here, we have two people walking down the road, and they don't know who he is. So how do they not know Jesus? And we're going to find out later, I'm ruining something ahead, that these are actually followers of Jesus. It's like, you were around this guy. How were you unable to figure this out, correct? But those are the people that he chooses to interact with first. It's people who are further away. And that happens a lot because sometimes those of us who are closer to to situations are more skeptical. So it sometimes takes us a while to be able to develop. When you're so close to a situation, it's tough to see it from an objective perspective. So he appears to these two. They're just walking down the road. He's like, hey, let's. Let's all walk together. What's interesting and what bothers some scholars is that we can't figure out where this Emmaus is located. Of all the archaeology, and they've done a a, a load of archaeology in the ancient world, we've never found this actual village of Emmaus. But there were all sorts of blips and and blurb little villages all around this. We just realized it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. That's a day's walk or so. So they are heading back from Jerusalem. And as we talk to the lead up of the crucifixion of Jesus, they're in Jerusalem because it's the festival of Passover. It's the Jewish Super Bowl, right? A million people flood the city to sacrifice a lamb to remember the Exodus story, right? So this is a very important thing. And as they're coming back, meet rando guy. And they're like, let's go for a walk. And he's like, What's the matter? You guys look pretty sad. And it's like, are you so obtuse? Like, weren't you in, you know, you're a Jewish guy. You were in Jerusalem. The whole city was talking about this. We're like, were you in some corner and not paying attention? So they're trying to tell him about this. So before we get within the story that they tell, just this concept, this metaphor that works out, walking with Jesus, going for a walk with Jesus. Like, it's just this metaphor that seems believable, right? I think it seems believable because of this story. Maybe you're familiar with the very famous poem, Footprints in the Stand. Okay? So there's these, you know, and if you don't know the poem, I guess I should bring you into there because this is Christian lore. It's like, you know, there's two people walking on a beach and then, you know, the guy looks behind. There's only one set of footprints. And he's like, yo, Jesus, we were walking together and then you left me. He said, no, I was carrying you the whole time, right? It's, it's really, what's funny is that authorship, they don't know who wrote this originally, but there's a lot of people who claimed it. But I still feel like there's a lot of people who should not have claimed it because it, I, I, I believe it to be somewhat lame. Because you're like, oh, how does that work out? To the point that there's been some great spoofs material written about the footprints poem. Anybody? There we go. It's a Star Wars quote. 
happens through. But it's funny because of the, I really feel because of that previous poem is why we even, we don't even contemplate this idea of walking with Jesus. You know, it's a metaphor. It works out. But it's something based upon this that seems believable. So I can wash this from our eyes. Here's a, another uh, poem. It's actually a song that we do not know the origin of. We think that it might have been a southern slave uh, spiritual that was written. And so there's no attribute to, attributing to this song. And I remember the first time I really heard the song was in the movie Cool Hand Luke. So if anybody is there. And, and I don't know what it is, but there's a simple... Actually, I could do a whole thing on the, the Cool Hand Luke narrative because Newman's so destructive in that story. And this is the song that just, you know, frames the whole movie, right? It's that southern singing. It's like, even though I am incarcerated and separated, it's just all about walking with Jesus. And that, that's why the refrain, just a closer walk with thee, granted, it's my plea daily walking close to thee. One thing about this metaphor, as Jesus walks with these guys, again, it's quasi-believable, and it's one thing that separates Christianity from a lot of the other major world religions. Because the emphasis on our faith is actually a human being, right? We believe that Jesus was fully God, but we believe he was a human, and therefore he did human actions. I didn't tell you this, I preached at a Presbyterian church on the Good Friday service. And it's the one where I wear robes sometimes to preach at. No robes on Good Friday. But I'm standing in front of this historical poet, pulpit. And the word I get to preach on there, because you preach in the last words of Jesus, is I thirst. Which is like the worst words you get. Because it's just like the plainness. Because it's Jesus is on the cross saying, I'm thirsty. And the only thing we can derive from it is the humanity of Jesus. And I, I talk about that. It's like, you don't think of Jesus being human, right? Like, he kind of floated. He walked on water. He's, you know, he's like, there's some water. Poof, wine. It's like he's doing all this stuff. You don't think of him as human. Like, that Jesus, like, yawned. That Jesus, you know, like would get maybe paper cuts and it'd be annoying. Maybe not because the parchment was different. And the one thing I was like, and I said, finally, and I'm standing behind this historical pulpit. And I was like, I know this is inappropriate, but have you ever thought about Jesus had to use the bathroom? You know, just, just think about that. And it was funny, there were some like unusual giggles in the audience because the average age was like 80 years old of the people in the audience. It's like, can we laugh at this? I don't know. But it's funny, we laugh at the idea that Jesus was human. Or the idea, just talking about it, is that you could actually have walked with Jesus. And therefore, this metaphor is so strong, and it's what separates Christianity from all these other world religions, right? It's because one thing is, in Islam, you don't walk with Muhammad. You don't even visualize Muhammad, right? In other pluralistic religions, there's no focus on that. The idea that Jesus was fully human gives us a point of connection and relation. And that's the story of Jesus and the incarnation of him coming from heaven to earth. Is that he's relatable. Keep reading, William Zane, verse 19 to 24. What things he asked? It'll get there. What things he asked? Oh, yeah. You're good. Verse 19. All right. What things he asked about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and a deed before God and all the, and all of the, and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But he, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women in addition, some of our women amazed us. 
They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels and said to and said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but he but him they did not see. So what we have here, and we see here by talking about our women, is saying like, hey, we're, we're Christ followers too. And as they're telling this narrative, they're confused. Now understand this narrative exists for you and for me as much as it exists for the early church, the recipients of this. Because what it's trying to say is, what does belief in Jesus look like? And he's giving a synopsis right here, right, of what happened. Is that Jesus, he was a prophet. He didn't just say profound things, though. He did miraculous things. He was like the super mega prophet. There was no one ever like him. He was wrongly killed by the religious leaders that he claimed to come save. So it was that even though he looked like the promised Messiah, the the religious leaders who had the power said, no, he's not, let's kill him. And then, when he was buried, three days later, the tomb they went to look at was empty. And there's all these angels here. And what these guys are trying to do is make sense of what happened. And it's like they have all the pieces to the puzzle. Right now, we're doing a familial puzzle. And it's sitting in the middle of our family room upstairs. And it's just like the worst, right? Because you know, as you get down to the end, there will be a missing piece. And there is nothing worse than putting your time into something and getting to the end and realize that the singular piece is missing. And what's interesting is that the key piece to what these two gentlemen are trying to process through his followers is like, you know, we had Jesus. He was amazing. It came through. It just doesn't make sense. Is because they were unable to see the full thing. It's what happened on the third day. If they were around Jesus, we have this in Luke. He even talked about it, Right? It's not like Jesus. So as much as there's some veiling right here, some of it is just being obtuse. And you know what? As much as we want to be like idiots, I can relate to that, right? Like I'm the guy who opens up the refrigerator and can't see the milk even though because it's hidden behind the Diet Coke, right? So as much as you're like, yes, Steve is an idiot, you need to admit yourselves that you are obtuse too. Sometimes there's things that are evident that we don't see. So even though Jesus said, listen... We're going to go up to Jerusalem. All this stuff the prophets have said will happen. They're going to insult, mock, flog, spit on the Messiah, and they'll kill him. But on the Thursday, they'll rise, he'll rise again. They're like, okay. Like he said, they'll rise again. But the problem is, is that they weren't at the point that were like, we can believe all the miracles Jesus performs, but the idea that he could be like dead and then alive, that's just ridiculous. That's just of a level that just goes beyond the supernatural that we can't digest. Friends, the only thing lacking within this whole narrative, and this is just what Jesus is going to get through in the next thing, is the resurrection. What does the empty tomb mean? It's the message of Easter. It's the message that everybody still has to grapple with today. What does it mean that the body wasn't there? Was it just it was stolen? Or did it mean something more? Does it mean that death is dead? That there's something more to the world than this? That there's life? Okay? Keep at it, Zane. Verses 25 through 29. You're doing well. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And being with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. 
As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. So this is why I say that they were obtuse and that there's some personal culpability when they're like, you know, hey, three days later, tomb's empty. We have no idea. And and Jesus' response here is priceless. Because think about it. In this gospel, we have some of the last words that Jesus is saying on this earth. And he's just basically like, you are so stupid. Like, seriously, the words here that he says, how foolish you are, the, the, the literal Greek is slow in heart and understand they did not necessarily in this time have the full connection with how the brain processes. So the heart was not just an emotive thing, but it was also cognitive as well. He's like, you guys aren't that bright. Let me fill in the gaps. And Jesus starts preaching about himself. And he's just like, look at everything that's happened in the, school, in, in the scope of biblical history. All this th- stuff that happened in the Old Testament. You know, with the fall of, of humanity, sin, and how sin was there. But they had to start the sacrificial system. But that was imperfect because all you would get is a bunch of dead animals. And that's horrible. So he's going through all of this and they're like, that makes a lot of sense. So again, this here for us today to realize that all the Bible talks about this moment of Jesus for the people in that day in the early church trying to make sense of it. If you look at the book of Acts and in our men's group on Saturdays, we're talking about this in Acts. All it is, there's a bunch of sermons in there that talk about this thing to make sure the church gets it right. This wasn't just some happenstance thing. This had been woven together with human history to get to this point. And now it's starting to make sense. And when he's like, see you guys, he's like, no, 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 let's go eat. And this is the thing I do love is that we've studied through Luke. If you go back through it, every time Jesus is invited out to dinner, he's like, sure. So he loves himself a buffet, right? But what he does is he loves more than food. He loves the people that are surrounding it. Can we go back to the Odysseus story really quick? Because it weaves itself within here. So there's an interesting parallel. Because within the story of Odysseus, there's actually a point where he's talking to his wife in disguise. Right? So he hasn't seen her for decades and they're having the conversation. And in the Odysseus story, he is like, you know, she's like, you, you know where my husband is? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. <laughs> Sly. And he, she's like, what's he doing? Well, he's trying to figure out how he should approach his own island of Ithaca after so long an absence. Whether to return openly or in disguise. So you see that he is safe and will soon be back. Indeed, he's very close. His exile from his friends and his country will be ended very soon. You know, like there's this cryptic nature. Really, I think that's what Luke is doing right here, trying to parallel the history right here. Like, he's trying to bring this occurrence right back into the story. It's like, Jesus, what, what is Jesus really trying to do here? What Jesus is trying to do is determine the question that plagues those people, them, and us today. It's like, will you accept that he is who he says he is? So it's like he's lurking. He's dwelling. We talked about the quote last week of Bertrand Russell when he would be, you know, when the atheist was said, I'll be before God, what's going to be the thing that you'll say to him? He said, you left me insufficient evidence, right? Because everybody wants more. But there's a point what Jesus and all the scriptures are trying to point through is that what's this life about? Is it bigger than me? And if it is, what does it look like? Do me one favor as we go through last time for this, the end of Luke for us. So we're not going to read through the end of the chapter. You can go home and finish it tonight if you want the completeness. Verses 30 to 33. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. 
Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And his uh, dis- and his uh, disap- and he disappeared from their sights. Then uh, asked each other, they asked each other, where uh, were not our hearts uh, burning within our within us uh, while he talked uh, with us uh, on uh, the road and opened uh, the scriptures to us? They uh, got up and returned uh, at once to Jerusalem. There they found uh, the eleven and those with them assembled together. Keep going in verse 34, I'm sorry. Yep, sorry. And saying, it is true, the Lord uh, has uh, risen and uh, has appeared uh, to Simon. Thank you. Okay, so even though Jesus is the guest, they're like, hey, come over to dinner. He's like, I got it, I'll take control. And you see him in the role of breaking of the bread. Now, this is something important whenever we look at the Bible. You know, there's two different kinds, but within this element of breaking the bread, we see communion, right? And actually, Luke has Jesus saying, like, he's repeating the Last Supper. So it's like, this is the last Last Supper, right? And it's interesting, at that point, they're just like, wait a minute! And they figure out, and poof, Jesus is gone. It's really such an interesting story, right? It's like, he doesn't linger, and he, you know, I don't know if he's just like, yeah, and then poof, gone. Like, there's got to be something else that happened there, Right? So they're just like, we, this is it. We need to go back to Jerusalem, right? So now they're going back to Jerusalem. It's everybody like, this happened. Like Jesus, he did rise from the dead. We walked with him. I love how it says right here is that like they figured it out. Like wasn't your heart just burning within you? Like you, you knew this wasn't just an ordinary thing. It harkens back actually the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was apparent in the first century, uses the exact same words here for the burning heart from Psalm chapter 38 verse 4. So there's a link where uh, the psalmist says, my heart is heated within me and in my meditation burns a fire. It's just like that moment of understanding. You have the point of clarity where it's like this all makes sense. And we thought it was just exciting. That's why we invited it in because he sounds like a nice guy and he's pretty sharp. But then you realize, no, it all is clear. Friends, this story of the walk to Emmaus is not about proving that Jesus was raised from the dead. What it was for you and I, it's about interpreting what that means for us today. Like, what does this mean? That Jesus defeated death. Illustration from... English soccer, of which I'm a fan, which right now, I'm de- de- uh, I have a friend, my team, Manchester United, is playing, even as we speak, but I came to church anyway, instead of being at a pub with my friend Jeff, who's from England, who's an Everton fan, and that's who they're playing right now. So I like English soccer. And I have instilled this with my daughter to the point that she's figured it out, to the point that she's been wearing her Manchester United gear to her school and mocking Liverpool fans, because Liverpool, within... The scheme of things is the enemy of Manchester United. But I am a big man, big enough to say I can use Liverpool soccer as a positive illustration and not lose my soul, although this is my Manchester United jacket. That's why I wore it today. And I told my daughter, I'm talking about Liverpool, and she's like, what good can you save Liverpool? And I was like, that's my girl. But here's the thing. There's another song, another song, written by Rodgers and Hammerstein called You'll Never Walk Alone. And it was redone in the 1960s by a group in England. And Liverpool adopted it as their song. So when you're like, you see it on TV, at the very beginning of the game, it's like this thing. And by the way, 
we know American sports fans are passionate, but they've like, they do have another notch there because part of it is that they you know, pull their passion into singing. So I always feel bad because like FC Cincinnati is the local soccer team that's going to kick off this week. And all these ardent supporters are like, yeah, we want to recreate this. And it just is impossible because we're Americans. Because the only place we sing in public is like the national anthem. That's it. But before each game, they start playing the music to this song, You'll Never Walk Alone. And then they cut it out and the whole stadium sings it. And it's actually been this anthem. So in 1989, there was a disaster where they were in a soccer match someplace else and almost 100 people died in a, uh, it was a shoddy construction at a stadium and they collapsed. And it was like this moment, you know, like of horror related to the sport. But this song became like this anthem. So for now, for them, it's like this infused way by which they view their lives. And what's crazy is that as I thought about this all week, about walking with Jesus, you know, to this point of figuring out who he was, it was like the lyrics of this song that I think actually explained it. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. So, What's funny is that even, I I swear I have some goosebumps right now because even though I have supreme hatred for that football team, I even like sit in reverence when you see 50,000 people singing these lyrics out because for them, it's a means by which they process their life. Do you see that, right? Like on the basis here, this is motivational, you know, pithy responses. Like maybe somebody probably has a tattoo of this because it motivates them through life. But here's the thing, friends, is that what Jesus really does is he does this in, it did do it in a literal sense and offers to do that for us. Because there's this idea that life is difficult. Maneuvering it is tough. Trying to interpret that, all that happens in life, incredibly difficult. But what we do when we believe the God of the scriptures, when we follow Jesus, is we see this. This is in whom our hope is. So then it, it goes from pithiness to something more substantial. And this type of thing wasn't created with Rodgers and Hammerstein, but stretches back 2,000 years. And during that whole time, for better and for worse, believers have been living that out, trying to make sense of what happens in their lives. One last thing about this. Because we did talk about doubt last week in Easter. Because at the beginning of chapter 24, the, the first people to show up on the scene, and even these guys right here, their, their whole contract is doubt right? What happens? So it's interesting, this walk. Because in Luke's story, these are the very first people that get a sense of who Jesus is, right? But what's funny is that they're engaged in a walk with him and they're talking scripture. And you would think, if I was writing this story, if I was writing this story, that's where I would put, you know, like Jesus is walking along and they get to the fork in the road. And instead of going to eat, to like come in for dinner, Jesus, he's just like, oh, by the way, boom, Jesus. And it's like, poof, he's gone. And then they run back on the path, Right? Like, really going to dinner messes up the story a little bit because it takes them off the path. They're no longer walking and they're in this scene. And I would say that that was incredibly providential. Not just for those dudes, because you're like, what does that even do to the story? Actually, it does a lot because of this. The original hearers of all this were still trying to process Jesus. They were trying to make sense of it, just like we are today, right? And where does the clarity of Jesus appear in communion. 
So communion, you know, Catholic Church do it every week. That's one of the things that we do. We do it every week. Some churches do it less. But what's interesting is communion is something that we do regularly is a means by which you and I can relate to something that Jesus and his followers did 2,000 years ago that has still progressed through the time, right? There's some sort of, you know, that's this the issue that we have. There's something mystical about it, even though I have no idea what the hell it is, right? Like, I still don't understand communion, and I've studied theology for, you know, the better part of my life. And for people who claim they know exactly what it is, they're full of themselves because... There's some things we're just not meant to understand, but somehow it's an inextricable link to what happened 2,000 years ago. Now get this. Did Jesus do his, it's me, on the walk? No. The walk was important, but he did it at communion. See, because if it happens on the walk, then you know what you and I are sitting here? We're like, man, if it could only become more real to me, if I could only just walk with Jesus. Something that I want, right? Like I would like to... Because the best times are going on walks with people and just talking. Maybe that's just me. If you hate it, I'd like to talk with you about it. I just feel like a good walk when you're talking to people and you can figure out life, I feel like it's great. You know? Am I alone in this? Can I get some amens on that? Okay. If you're with me, that's great. But then if Jesus revealed himself at that time, then we'd all be like, oh, so lucky they got to walk with Jesus and that's how we figured it out. No, that's not how it happened. How do they figure it out? They figure it out through communion. And what's funny is that's something that you and I every week have the chance to experience and emulate. It's like we get a chance for clarity. Does communion do do that? I think it does. Do we sometimes struggle with it because of all that's going around with us, the struggles of work, with life, maybe, you know, just do we sometimes struggle to focus in? Yes. Does that mean that we lose our doubts? No. But there's something about communion that brings clarity to everything. Because what does it do? It makes us think about Jesus. It brings us back to his death. It brings us back to this community of believers that has lived for two millennia and allows us to see our place in the universe. So as we conclude this whole series and what we're doing, that's what we're going to do right now is we're going to have a time of communion and we take it every week to remember the death of Christ. And my prayer is that it today brings clarity to us throughout all the craziness of life, through all the things that are happening. I hope it brings clarity to us. So I'm going to pray if you're a follower of Jesus. We invite you. When the trays are passed, go ahead and take a piece of bread, take a cup, consume it, hang on to the cup, and uh, we're going to use the next few minutes to commune. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the past months. I thank you that we've had this chance to go through the book of Luke, a story of your son Jesus. And it's been great, Father, to see that every person with whom he interacts is affected. Sometimes, like the religious leaders, they were affected and they just sought negativity out of that that it rubbed them the wrong way to the extent that their interactions with Jesus led them to want his death. It's funny, other people, Jesus brought forgiveness and life. And what we realize is that as we commune, that, that's what brings it to us, God. It's about life. So we thank you for this story. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the clarity that this time of communion brings. Father, as, remember the, as we remember the cross, the bread and the cup, as we consume that, We remember what Jesus did for us. Thanks for the empty tomb. Thanks for death over life. Thanks for you in Jesus' name.